Good morning and good afternoon. Welcome to another episode of Before Coffee. It's Friday, it's the weekend, and we're going to tell you what's going on before we don't tell you what's going on at all. Made it past the technical difficulties, now to read the difficult part. You say so. You got three? I I got two stories in a really long one. Oh boy, let's not do that. Okay, man. I'm just grabbing the first thing in technology. Got three stories. Okay. Then I guess we should just start. Alright, let's get my reading pane up here. Well, it's easier to read ads, right? Yeah. Day on before coffee. As well as fighting Russia. Ukrainians are battling corruption at home. At least 15 die in highway crash in Canada. Three shipwrecks, people smuggling suspects arrested as search continues. 930 million in grants announced in Biden's effort to expand internet access to every home in the U.S. U.N. nuclear chief says situation at Zaporozhia plant is serious, but it can't operate safely for some time. And a 15th century manuscript mentions Monty Python-esque killer rabbit today on Friday June 16th comprehensive news of planet earth on before coffee buddy every second computer technology aside let's get into our first news story which is going to be about the Ukraine of course this is a very long article from Patrick Wintour, of the diplomatic editor, which I think we've read a lot from him these these last, what is it, four months. If a fire is raging in a house, discussion of the color of the replacement carpets is not normally the first priority. Now I'm going to sneeze as soon as I start this new story. Okay, I got past the sneeze. So, to convene a Ukraine reconstruction conference in the midst of the Kyiv counteroffensive may seem premature and even tempting fate. The EU staged a large number of Syria reconstruction conferences premised on the defeat of Basal al-Assad, and look how that turned out. The UK's two-day conference starting on the 21st of June is at least the sixth since Russia's full-scale invasion. The first was held on the 4th of July, 2022, in Lugano, Switzerland. Germany, holding the rotating chair of the G7, held an event in Berlin on the 21st of October. Paris got in on the act on the 13th of December. Warsaw on the 13th of February. And the EU Committee of the Regions held an event just last month on the 25th of May. The proliferation of such symptom, sim, simpo, symposiums raises questions about whether countries are competing or coordinating over a coherent plan to rebuild Ukraine, and crucially, whether systems will be in place for when the billions in expected Western aid in Ukraine, ranked by Transparency International in 2021 as the second most corrupt country in Europe, behind only Russia, to stop the members of elite siphoning it off. The UK claims it event, its event is warranted and different to predecessors since it is focused on how the private sector can take the helm. 
Estimates of the cost of the reconstruction vary and obviously change with every apartment, dam, and power station destroyed by Russia. The most cited damage estimated is the World Bank's estimation of assessment of $135 billion of physical damage and $411 billion in replacement costs. Some regions face tougher challenges than others. Dr. Vlad Mykoneko of St. Peter's College in Oxford told the UK Foreign Affairs Select Committee, All the big cities on the Ukraine-Russian border such as Kharkiv, Luhansk, Donetsk, or Maripol have had to find a new function in this modern post-war Ukraine. That's a very difficult question that people are still shying away from. Football, the private sector is not going to risk an investment if it fears the funding is going into a non, not a proposed new bridge, but an oligarch's back pocket. A recent U.S. aid report says investors believe they must contend with unscrupulous rent-seeking officials, rely on flawed judiciary to protect their rights, they will less be less likely to invest. So basically, Ukraine has to stop being corrupt if they want any help, because nobody's going to invest in them if they are going to be a corrupt government. On his, of his efforts to expunge corruption, when Barack Obama's Vice President Biden claims he warned the Prime Minister, Petro Poroshenko, in 2016 that if he had not sacked the Prosecutor General, Viktor Shokin, before he got on his plane back to Washington, the U.S. was not going to hand over $1 billion in loan guarantee. He says Poroshenko rang him on his plane home to say Shokin was gone. Shokin had previously denied any wrongdoing of, and, and corruption. But that was also a different person, right? Right now, they're being led by an actor, which I guess could be corrupting. But the reason he got even got voted in as leader is because he played a leader on television and everyone was so impressed by his acting they're like hey can you do that in real life <laughs> just become that character permanently um but there's a difference between a wartime leader and a peacetime leader as well that the conditionality of the the help or the aid is currently coming from three sources. The seven session conditions set by the EU last year, international financial institutions, and an informal group of progress chasing G7 ambassadors based in Ukraine. The hope is that fourth, a fourth pressure point is evolving in the shape of the G7 multi-agency donor coordination platform set up in January. The G7 platform based in Brussels consists of 12 officials overseen by triumvirate of Ukraine's finance minister, Serhii Marchenko, the EU Director for the European Neighborhood, Jan Kopman, and the U.S. Deputy National Security Advisor, Mike Pyle. For a modern Marshall Plan for Ukraine to, Ukraine to work, you need a Marshall. Someone who is who focuses and on from then. Uh, someone who focus focuses on this from when they get up in the morning, including selling into domestic audiences. Rodolf says. There's a joke that the original Marshall Plan was a Marshall Plan to sell the Marshall Plan. No such figures exist at the present. What that means. Uh-huh. Uh, Ukrainian officials also know the war risks being covered for bad people to reassert themselves. Alexander Novikov, the head of National Anti-Corruption Agency, sounded a warning note at a recent OECD anti-bribery conference. History shows us conflict often leads to an emergence of new oligarchs who exploit chaos for personal gain. 
Many say checking the rise of a new oligarch class has been hampered by the abandonment under martial law of many of Ukraine's extraordinary transparency measures, including registries of the property and income of public officials. The founder of U-Control, Sergei Milham, is one of the many saying that registries should now be reactivated. In the absence of open registries, corruption grows exponentially. Overall, anti-corruption campaigns say they're awakening progress and have their clear agenda in hand. Transparency and a cleaned-up judiciary are seen as the key to stopping corruption. At the London conference, UK will make it, the Ukraine will make a heavy sell of how digital transparency can protect the integrity of the reconstruction contracts. One thing Ukraine has shown is that it's hugely resourceful, adaptive, and digitally resistant, resilient. The Estonia of the East. Interesting. Um, so that's I'm gonna end the I'm gonna end it there. I've probably skipped at least 50 paragraphs about the story, but the point is they are trying not to be corrupt. There's definitely a plan, at least right now, with the leaders in power, that Ukraine does not want to become corrupt and use all of its, you know, help rebuild Ukraine money to build apartment complexes to sell their rich friends. They're not planning on doing that. Who knows if it will happen, but that's the plan. Yeah, Your at story. least that's their story. At least that's the story they're putting out. <clears throat> okay. All right. At least 15 dies uh, from uh, New York Times. Joseph Asai, I don't know how to pronounce it, but Joseph, B-J-O-S-A. At least 15 die in highway crash in Canada. A bus and semi-truck collided in a rural stretch of Trans-Canada Highway in Manitoba on Thursday, the police said. At, le <coughs> At least 15 people were killed in a crash along Trans-Canada Highway near Carberry, Manitoba on Thursday afternoon after a bus carrying 25 people Mostly older people collided with a semi-truck, the police said. The crash turned a mile of highway which runs from east to west and connects to the country's provinces into what the Royal Canadian Mounted Police in Manitoba called a mass casualty collision scene. It was not immediately clear what caused the collision, which happened around noon local time. Most of the victims were older people, a police official said. Ten people were sent. I'm not sure what older people means. That's getting a little fucking annoying when they say that. Ten people were sent to the hospital with injuries. The authorities did not immediately release the names of the victims or what older people means. Rob Hall, assistant commissioner and commanding officer of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, said in the news conference, for all those waiting, I can't imagine how difficult it is not knowing that the person you love the most will be making it home tonight. I am so sorry we cannot get you definitive answers you need more quickly. The police said that the bus had been traveling from Dauphin, another town two hours north of Carberry. Uh, yeah, it's another town. That's why it has another name. Jeez, I suppose. After the southbound bus cleared the westbound lanes in the intersection, it was struck by the semi-trailer, which was driving east. Both drivers were being treated for injuries at the hospital. Officers were still working at the crash site into the afternoon and will be considering whether to bring criminal charges. Rob Larson, or Lassen, superintendent of the Royal Canadian Mount, said at the news conference. After the crash, all available local officers and Royal Canadian Mounted Police were deployed to the area. Four emergency aircraft, including two helicopters from Winnipeg and Regina and Saskatchewan, flew to the scene and 
14 critical care crew members from STARS, an air ambulance nonprofit organization, responded, said Blake Robert, a spokesman for STARS, in an email. Local uh, hospitals activated a code orange alert, a triage level, to accommodate several patients by increasing staff and resources, such as surgical and critical care teams. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau called the crash incredibly tragic in a post on Twitter. He also said, I cannot imagine the pain in the those affected are feeling, but Canadians are here for you. Heather Stephenson, Manitoba's premier, said in a statement, our hearts are broken, our thoughts are within, with the families and loved ones of the lives impacted by the horrific and devastating tragedy near the town of Carberry. Carberry, nicknamed the King's Spud Country for its quality potato crops, is about two hours west of Winnipeg, the provincial capital, and has a population of fewer than 2,000 people. The crash on Thursday echoed another rural Saskatchewan fire, I'm sorry, another in rural Saskatchewan five years ago when a bus carrying a young hockey player from the Humboldt Broncos was struck by a transport truck on a secluded highway. 16 people died and 13 were injured. Miss Lassen said the police had called on their counterparts in Saskatchewan who had investigated the Humboldt crash to assist the latest crash. We have to kick the operational gear right away, thinking about what the families need, what the investigators need, he said. But that does not mean we're not feeling the pain with you. So tragic crash in Canada and, quote, older people, which they don't define what that means. Yeah. Your turn. Some of them, you know, they were on their last leg, so, you know. <laughs> I'm just like, I mean, are we being this Young little people, dismissive really of these sad. people and calling yeah. them older? And what the hell does older mean? Yeah. I was like, they're hey, New York Times. The young people who died. That's, I think that's what they're yeah. trying to say. New York Times telling us, don't worry, they run their way out anyway. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very tragic. We're just making fun yeah. of it because it, it's so well, sad. You saying, know, you got to bring it, some lightness it, to it. Well, the editors at New York Times are just like, hey, hey, hey whatever. Give them some kind of vague information. Older people. Oh, well, they're 100? 100? Is that what that means? Oh, yeah, you're sorry. All right. Speaking of more tragic things happening in the world, Greek authorities have arrested the nine suspected people smugglers who are believed to have piloted the overcrowded, overcrowded fishing boat that sank off the coast of Greece in, on Wednesday in one of the worst disasters in the Mediterranean in recent years. The search operation in the tragedy in which hundreds are feared to have died is due to continue until at least Friday morning, according to government sources. So far, 78 deaths have been confirmed, but Greek police believe as many as 500 are missing, with the witness accounts that up to 100 children were traveling in the ship's hold. Jesus. And the ship sank. So, like, yeah. Uh, the chance of retrieving the sunken vessel were remote. Sources say because the area of international waters where the incident occurred was so deep, the chances of finding more survivors are minimal. I mean, if they can find the, the Titanic, they can find this ship. Uh, retired yeah. Greek Coast Guard Spanos told the national broadcaster ERT, We have seen old fishing boats like these before from Libya. They are not at all seaworthy, but it's simply they are floating coffins. Yeah, they're probably only supposed to stay at the coasts, you know, to fish. We're not supposed to go yeah. seafaring sea across. Not supposed to have more than 30 people on them. Yeah. 
On Thursday night, Sky TV reported that the nine people smuggling suspects, all men, were of Egyptian descent and were suspected of mastering, masterminding the illegal voyage of hundreds of people to Italy from Libya after the first sitting out from Egypt with the trawler. They are in custody and will appear before a local magistrate, Nikos Alexio, the Hellenic Coast Guard spokesperson told The Guardian. They are being held by the Coast Guard in Kalamata. The public prosecutor is likely to press several charges against the group, including that of mass murder. Local media reports say the ship's captain was not among them and had died when the vessel went down. Well, at least he, you know, went down with the ship. On Thursday evening, thousands of protesters rallied in Athens and the northern city of Thessaloniki and demanding the European migration policies be eased to prevent another tragedy. A group of protesters in the capital threw petrol bombs at police who responded with tear gas. In Kalamata, protesters marched outside the migrant shelter. Crocodile tears, known to the EU's pact on migration, read on the banner. During a visit to Kalamata on Thursday, Alex Tispiras, who was Prime Minister from 2015 to 2019, which was the peak of the refugee crisis, said the immigration policy that Europe has been following for years turns the Mediterranean seas into watery graves. Okay, so he's going to blame the European Union instead of his own country, which he closed the borders on? I'm sure it's both people's fault, but trying to make it only one of their fault is kind of suspicious. Spears, now an opposition leader, said, What sort of protocol does not call for rescue of an overloaded boat about the sink? Who said nobody was trying to rescue them? What is he saying? He's just, he's just populizing. He's just using populism. Uh, under its conservative government, who were in power until last month, right, the Greek took a harder stance on migration, building a walled camp and boost, boosting border controls. The country is currently governed by a caretaker administration pending an election on the 25th of June. Greece's government spokesperson, Elias Sidikantadis, told Reuters, Reuters that the biggest Reuters. challenge of the EU border states is forging a comprehensive EU solution on migration and asylum that respects international law and exclusive humanism. Because I'm sure the EU would like to just say, I don't fucking care, let them in. But, you know, the people who own the countries are not very happy with the EU telling them what to do. You know, this is my border, I can do what I want. The United Nations has registered more than 20,000 deaths and disappearances in the central Mediterranean since 2014, making it the most dangerous migrant crossing in the world. Greek authorities have been criticized for not acting to rescue migrants on Wednesday, despite a Coast Guard vessel escorting the trawler for hours that night before it sank. Greek officials argued that the migrants repeatedly refused assistance and insisted on continuing to Italy. However, a network of activists said they received a repeated distress call from the vessel during the same time. The Greek Coast Guard said it was notified of the boat's presence late Tuesday morning and observed by a helicopter that it was sailing on a steady course. A little later, Greek search and rescue officials said they reached someone on the boat by satellite phone, who really said the passengers needed food and water but wanted to continue to Italy. We talked about this yesterday, but basically several different merchant ships gave them money, uh, gave them food and water, said, wow, that's a really big, that's a lot of people on a ship, but, you know, nobody was like, get me off of here, you know, because well, they're probably that, worried that as soon as they get on the ship, they'll be taken back to Greece, and then Greece will say, yeah. hey, you're not supposed to be here, we don't like people, you people of your kind, and then ship them to Tunisia or freaking Turkey or something. Get out of my country. Well, so that's why they don't even accept help because they're so worried Greece, Greek will just send them back to where they came from. 
And then they the plight of reason. The plight of the refugee. It's a yeah. age-old story. The deadliest migrant tragedy oh. in Greece was in June 2016, when at least 320 people were listed as dead or missing, sinking near Crete. Greece's caretaker government has called a three-day national mourning, with electoral campaigning ahead of the polls on June 25th suspended. Alright, that's the end of my story. On to yours. Alright, <laughs> right. and a, a, a story that doesn't involve death and destruction. Um, 93, hopefully doesn't involve death and destruction. Well, who knows with the internet, right? It's pretty dangerous. 93 million in grants announced in Biden's effort to expand internet access to every home in the U.S. The massive federal, and this is from AP News, Kavish Harijai. Har- Har- <clears throat> massive federal effort to expand internet access to every home in the U.S. took a major step forward Friday. The announcement of 930 million in grants to shore up connections in remote parts of Alaska, rural Texas, and dozens of other places where significant gaps in connectivity persist. The so-called middle mile grants announced by the Department of Commerce are meant to create large-scale networks that will enable retail broadband providers to link subscribers to the internet. Department officials liken the role of the middle mile, the mid-section of the infrastructure necessary to enable internet access, composed of high-capacity fiber lines carrying huge amounts of data at very high speeds, to how the internet highway system forge connections between communities these networks are workhorses carrying large amounts of data very long distances said mitch landrew the white house infrastructure coordinator in a media zoom call there are the ones that are bridging the gap between the larger networks and the last mile connections from tribal lands to undeserved rural and remote areas underserved not undeserved sorry (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> underserved rural and remote areas to essential solutions like hospitals, institutions, sorry, like hospitals, schools, libraries, and major businesses. The grants were awarded to a cross-section of state government agencies, tribal governments, and telephone and electronic cooperatives. They are intended to trigger the laying of 12,000 miles of new fiber through 35 states in Puerto Rico. Lots of jobs out there, man. That's a lot of cable. The, the, the largest grant of $89 million was awarded to the Alaska-based telecommunications company that hopes to build fiber network through a remote section of the state where an estimated 55% of people lack access to basic internet. The expansion is one of the several initiatives pushed through by Congress by President Joe Biden's administration to expand, expand high-speed internet con- connectivity to the entire country. The Middle Mile Program is force, is a force multiplier in efforts to connect everyone in America. These grants will help build a foundation of networks that will turn connect well, that will in turn connect every home in the country to affordable, reliable, high-speed internet service. The grants were set in motion by the $65 billion allocated by Congress for the broadband as part of the $1 trillion infrastructure measure Biden signed into law in 2021. Most of the money, $42.5 billion, will be distributed to the states as part of the Broadband Equity Access and Deployment, or BEAD, program, partly based on new federal maps identifying areas that aren't connected. 
State allotments from BEAD are expected to be announced at the end of this month. States will then run their own programs to identify recipients that would then build out last mile networks to unserved communities. Winners of the middle mile grants will have up to five years to complete their projects once they receive those funds, though a one-year extension may be requested under certain circumstances. Your story. They're all getting the interwebs connected to each other. And nice for the U.S. to finally join, you know, the rest of the developed world in making sure that every single corner has internet. Not saying oh, yeah. every high paid jobs like that, but of course it's I, easier the smaller your country to make sure everyone has internet. I know the U.K. famously has terrible internet as when you get farther away from London, so. Yeah, and also high-paying jobs. And yeah. Shit. Go, go go to Alaska, which is beautiful this time of the year, and dig holes and dig trenches and lay cable. Yeah, go. Let's go, everybody. Woohoo! Maybe you should go there. No, they probably wouldn't hire you. Are you telling me to get lost? All right, thanks. <laughs> UN Nuclear Chief is warning about the nuclear station, of course, in Ukraine after the dam collapse. We talked about it before. That, that dam that dam helped keep um, what do you call it water, water. in a reservoir <laughs> to help cool down the, the the nuclear power plant so it doesn't get too hot uh, and the head of the atomic energy agency has said the situation at the Russian controlled nuclear plant in Ukraine is serious and that ensuring water for cooling was a priority of his visit adding that the station would operate safely for some time. Raphael Grossi of the International Atomic Energy Agency, the IAEA, was inspecting the state of Europe's largest nuclear plant following last week's breach in the Krakowka Dam, downstream on the Dnipro River. He says IAEA inspectors would remain on the site. What is essential for safety of this plant is that the water that you see behind me stays at that level. Rosie said in two weeks issued from the near station, including the next pond that supplies water for cooling. With the water that is here, the plant can be kept safe for some time. The plant is going to be working to replenish the water so that safety functions can continue normally. Rosie said the visit, this is third to the plant in southern Ukraine since Russia's forces occupied it in the first few days of February 2022 evasion, had gathered a good amount of information for assessment. I'm just a uh, random thought here. Why did, after Crimea, why, I guess they couldn't move it. Maybe I don't know when this nuclear plant was built, but even after the Union, Soviet Union, the collapse of the Soviet Union, why did Ukraine build a, a, like a nuclear power plant right next to where Russia is? Shouldn't they have built it like on the western side? So that it would have been as far away as possible from Russia? I don't know. Maybe that was the okay. only land they had available, Whoops. and uh, I have no idea why that it was built there. It's just a random thought. Well, who knows that? They were supposed to, uh, Ukraine was uh, one of them countries that was, uh, what do you call it, the Chicken Kiev Agreement, where uh, they were worried about loose nukes and, and yeah. uh, the Ukraine. That's why it ended up uh, kind of sacrificing it to. Uh, I guess it was Boris. Uh, it might have been Gorbachev then. So yeah, you can hold on to Ukraine for a little longer or some shit like that. Anyway, sorry. 
Yeah, it was just just a random question I had. Like, why did they put it? Oh. Like, it got instantly invaded as like as soon as the invasion started. Maybe that would they shouldn't have built it there. Uh, either way, the past aside, Russia and Ukraine have repeatedly accused each other of shelling near the plant, endangering its safe operation. The station six reactors are now shut down. IAEA spokesperson said gunfire briefly halted Gross's convoy as it headed back to Ukrainian-held ter territory after the visit, but the delegation was in no immediate danger. Russian energy officials were earlier cited by TASS news agency as accusing Ukraine of opening fire at the convoy. Just everything that happens is just Russia going, Ukraine did it! Uh-huh. Uh, early in the day, Grossi said it was unrealistic to expect Moscow and Kiev to sign a document on the site security while fighting rage nearby. The Kukova reservoir was normally used to refill the cooling pond adjacent to the plant, but cannot do so now because of its failing water level after the breach, officials say. Instead, the pond, which is separated from the reservoir, can be replenished using deep underground wells. Grossi was early quoted by Russian news agency as saying the situation on the site was serious. On the one hand, we can see that the situation is serious, the consequences of the dam destructions are there, and they are real, he said. At the same time, there are measures that are being taken to stabilize the situation. Grossi's trip was delayed by a day for security reasons amid heavy fighting. Russian forces captured both the nuclear plant and Kapova hydroelectric dam shortly after President Vladimir Putin sent them into Ukraine in February 2022. Grossi has repeatedly called for the end of the fighting in the vicinity of the facility to avoid any catastrophic accidents. Power lines have been repeatedly cut. There are diesel generators at the plant, which have a, also have alternative water sources. So, okay. It's, it's a tough situation, and there's nothing to do about it, and people might just use it as a weapon. So, we'll see what mm -hmm. happens in the coming future. I hope I don't have to be breathing nuclear waste air. In a couple of months. Your next and of story. course, and today's opportunity for me to say, there's today's damn news. <laughs> also, this article is from just Guardian staffs and agencies. Oh. So just everyone okay. at the Guardian wrote this article. I don't know. Speaking of sourcing, this is from airstechnica.com, ARSTechnica.com, writer Jennifer Ouellette. And this article, Richard Hege was clearly a medieval scribe with a sense of humor as he was describing killer rabbits. One of the many standout scenes in the 1970s features King Arthur and his knights facing down the killer rabbit of Carbonog, uh, a seemingly innocuous bunny who soon proves to be a devastating forcing the knights to retreat. Run away! Run away! Killer rabbits are kind of a mainstay of medieval literature, featuring prominently, featured prominently in the marginal illustrations as well as mentioned in the Chaucer's The Canterbury Tales. In fact, the Python crew drew inspiration for their version from a scene on the facade of Notre Dame in Paris depicting a knight fleeing a rabbit. Killer rabbits might even been more common trope among traveling minstrels, according to one scholarly discoverer of a written record of a live performance presented in the 15th century manuscript, which also includes one of the earliest recorded uses of the phrase red herring. 
Cambridge University. That's Cambridge, England, not Cambridge, Maryland. I'm just kidding. Author of the recent paper published in the Review of English Studies, stumbled across the manuscript while doing research in the National Library of Scotland. The scribe, the scribe identified himself in the text as Richard Heeg, H-E-E-G-E, or Heege, a household cleric and tutor to the Sherbrooke family of Derbyshire. Heege's manuscript, which, with its inclusion of a lowbrow nonsense verse, a mock sermon, and a burlesque romance, gives us the rarest glimpse of medieval world rich in oral storyteller, storytelling and popular entertainments, said Wade. Minerals, minstrels, minstrels in the Middle Ages traveled from town to town amusing people with in baronial halls, taverns, and fairs with their performances. Fictional minstrels are frequently mentioned in medieval literature, but according to any reference to a real minstrel, and there are few, there are few, if any, written records of them. Most of the records are payments made to minstrels listed by their first names and instruments played. While there are many medieval works, minstrel tags pervade. No single text survived that we can confidently tether to the medieval minstrel as a composer, owner, or performer. Not even brave, 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 brave Sir Robin. Not even that. Anyway. Wade is ca careful to emphasize that he is not claiming the discovery of manuscript actually written by a medieval minstrel, but he thinks the Hiji manuscript or Hiji manuscript was either a transcript of a live minstrel performance or copied from a minstrel's now lost written notes. Among the evidence Wade cites is a note scrawled on the bottom of the page that read, By me, Richard Hiji, because I was at the feast and did not have a drink implied that he was sober enough to write about a minstrel's performance at said feast. The Hege manuscripts consists of nine miscellaneous booklets, and while it has been studied before, the prior work focuses on how it had been made, not the actual text. Wade's paper focuses on three texts of the booklet uh, on, in the first booklet. One is an alternative nonsense verse called The Battle of Brackenwet, featuring fragments of drinking songs, Robin Hood jousting bears, warring bumblebees and pigs on a bender. Second is a mock sermon in prose ridiculing the aristocracy, describing three gluttonous kings who eat so much that 24 oxen burst from their bellies and engage in a fight. The oxen reduce each other to three red herring. Finally, the third is a, there is a tale rhyme burlesque romance called The Hunting of the Hare, which contains the brief reference to a killer rabbit it is a story of a group of peasants, Will of Gape, David of Hedale, and Hobbes, Sim, and so on, who decided to curse a hare and end up brawling with each other and their dogs instead. In the end, the wives cart off the dead and wheelbarrows. There's really not much hunting going on with more of a crude body slapstick comedy with jokes about incontinence and plenty of pointless violence. Sounds like Monty Python. Most medieval poetry and storytelling has been lost. Manuscripts often preserve relics of high art. This is something else. It's mad and offensive, but it's just as valuable. These texts are from far more comedic, and they serve up everything from satirical, ironic, and nonsensical to the topical, interactive, and meta-comedic. It is a comedy feast. 
While Wade, Wade admits his case is circumstantial, he still believes to be relatively strong. There is no positive evidence of duplication from circulating exemplars as all three texts survive in this booklet only. All three are clearly interactive pieces intended for live performance, evidently for mid, mixed estate audiences who are assumed to be in the throes of merrymaking. Further, the texts are wholly original, i.e. not translations or dive from another known source material. And all three mention local settings, with one, Battle of Brackenwet, making references to the village near where Hiji is believed to have lived. Well, it's unlikely that the scholar will ever unearth a Middle East transcript that can be definitively tied to a mistral as it, as it is owner or author. Wade believes that his discovery shows that there are other valuable... How about medieval minestralery? Minestralery. <laughs> right on. And with that tongue twister, I'll end the story. <laughs> All right. In culture news, let's talk about Glenda Jackson, who has died yesterday, yes, on the 15th of June. Many leading British actors have mixed art and politics, but no great actor ever made such a decisive break from one to the other as Glenda Jackson, who has died at the age of 87 when she was elected Labour MP for Hampstead and Highgate in 1992. For the previous 30 years, she had been an astounding, ferocious presence in the theatre and on screen, a leading light of Royal Shakespeare Company in its most radical phase, and a memorable in film comedies with George Siegel and Walter Matthau, as well as she was in more temptress movies by Ken Russell. She never had to prove a point about her politics. She was known for having concerns rather than ideas, and these were rooted in her background of Lancastrian working-class poverty and her belief that the arts had both a higher purpose and a responsibility to educate and inform. I will be reading, I think, a short obituary by Julia Langdon here about Glenda Jackson. This is a really long article, like very many paragraphs, written by mm-hmm. Michael Bovenet, but we're just going to skip to the obituary here, which is short and sweet. Well, not maybe not short, but sweet. <laughs> Julia Langdon Bright, Glenda Jackson's politics were informed primarily by the considerable poverty of her childhood and made her a traditional socialist and one who was prepared to stand up for her personal beliefs, irrespective of any official labor party line. She had joined the party at age 16, fostered an ambition to become a social worker, and despite her considerable early celebrity on stage and screen, had a number of walk-on parts in the periphery of political politics from the middle of the 1970s. A Republican and an active feminist, she believed in human rights for anyone, anywhere. Her particular concern was for the homeless people, and she campaigned for a wider range of causes and charities. She also was an internationalist, actively helping the African National Congress during the fight against apartheid, and had been devastated by a personal visit to Ethiopia during the 1986 famine. He explored working for voluntary service overseas. He was vocal and opinionated, making her a highly attractive potential parliamentary candidate for the Labour Party. He resisted a number of early invitations, notably to succeed Dennis Healy in Leeds East, selected shortly thereafter in 1989 for the Tory-held Hampstead and Highgate constituency. Having never previously attended any local Labour Party meeting, 
He was chosen from a short list of four women on the strength of the personal manifesto she had given her audience, mounting to a rep repudiation of the policies of the then Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher. She won the seat comfortably in 1992 and held it thereafter in the ensuing four general elections. After boundary changes when the seat became Hampstead and Kilburn in 2010, he had the closest election result in England with a majority of just 42. In her maiden speech, Jackson challenged the traditional perception of the residents of Hampstead and mainly comprising the well-heeled Hirati or Shatterati Shatter, and pointed out the largest single group in her consensory were pensioners majority of whom were on social benefits. She swiftly repudiated any idea that her appearance on the Commons benches might import a touch of stardust or glamour, presenting yourself instead with a scrubbed face, as serious as a busy backbencher with a job to do. A performance that proved a serious disappointment to the parliamentary sketch writers. She voted for Tony Blair as Labour leader in 1994, and he appointed her as Shadow Transport Spokeswoman as the transport minister with responsibility for London after the 1997 election victory. He remained in post for two years, but then resigned to stand unsuccessfully for selection as the potential Labour candidate in the first London mayoral election, having been identified as someone who could defeat the renegade Ken Livingston. Or Livingston. Thereafter, she became a highly visible backbench MP who exercised her freedom to speak out in defense of her beliefs, particularly if they run contrary to those in the Labour government. During the roles involving the militant tendency in the early 1980s, she had denounced the policies of that organization as a self-indulgent crap. She used the full force of her rhetoric to denounce the Blair government's war in Iraq, and after the 2005 election, she threatened to stand against Blair as a stalking horse candidate for the Labour leadership to try to force his retirement as Prime Minister. In 2011, she announced she would not contest the next election on the grounds for age, and she stood down in 2015 after 23 years in the Commons. Linda Mae Jackson, actor, born 9th May 1936, died on June 15th, 2023. There you go. Here's yes, I remember her. For you. I remember well. I remember well. Two careers. Two careers, and both of them extraordinary. Uh, it's been a coughing time, sorry. And this day in history, what do we got? We got 1874. Arthur Meegan, leader of the Conservative Party and Prime Minister of Canada, was born in this day. In 1903, the Ford Motor Company was founded by Henry Ford and 11 associate investors. So 120 years of Fords. I have a Ford parked outside there. Hope it starts. And <laughs> you know what? I'm just joking. 1911, International Business Machines, IBM, a leading computer uh, manufacturer, was incorporated. So it's their birthday too, IBM. 1917, American publisher Catherine Graham owner and publisher of the Washington Post and Newsweek was born in New York City. 1932, the Lausanne Conference held to liquidate Germany's payment of reparations to the former allied and associates powers of World War I opened. Oh, I'm sure that was popular in Germany, huh? 1933, probably five minutes later, Hitler took over, right? Yeah. 
the, the 1933 the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation was created under the authority of the Federal Reserve Act of 1933. In 1933 also, the 100 days period of U.S. President Franklin D. Roosevelt came to a close with the bulk of his New Deal legislation passed. In 1976, on this day, South Africa police fired on a group of Soweto students marching and protesting against state plans to impose the Afrikaans language as a medium of instruction in black schools, igniting a massive popular uprising. Take your language and stick it up your ass. Mm -hmm. Oh, that was me editorializing. <laughs> 2012, Louis Yang became the first Chinese woman in space when she and two other crew members launched aboard the spacecraft Shenzhou 9. In 2017, German political politician Helmut Kohl, who presided over integration of East Germany into West Germany, died at the age of 87. And in 1963, the first woman in space on this day, 1963, Soviet B. Tereshkova became the first woman to travel into space, having been launched into orbit aboard the spacecraft Vostok 6, which completed 48 orbits in 70 years. And today's birthdays. Joyce Carol Oates, American author, was born this day in 1938. And also Tupac, Tupac Shakur, born this day in 1971. 1951, American, I'm sorry, Panamanian boxer Roberto Duran was born. 1912, 19, uh, Enoch Powell, American, I'm sorry, British politician was born. And in 1907, Jack Albertson, American actor, known for being in Chico and the Man and, oh, Willy Wonka. He was also the, one of the old men. He was grandpa for uh, Charlie's grandpa. Jack Albertson. Anyway, it's his birthday. Happy birthday, old man. He's been gone for years, but he can hear us somewhere, maybe. And what day is it today? International Day of Family Remittances. That's oh. right. It's International Day of Family Remittances. That's a tough Just in one. case you're... I got... Gotcha. It's Wear Blue Day. Find a no, gray. I, I, I don't have any blue. I got some blue stuff. I got a lot of that stuff. So wear blue. It's World Sea Turtle Day. It is Bloomsday. I guess it's like Doomsday, except things bloom. I don't know. National Fudge Day, which is easier to explain. Las Vegas World Martini Day Giveaway. Las Vegas World Martini Day Giveaway. Win a trip to Las Vegas. That's here. And then what? Give your money away to a casino. International Day of the African Child, and that is today's days. Well, that's been Allison here from the Netherlands, hoping that they find all those poor lost souls in the Mediterranean Sea and don't give up just because, oh, it's going to be difficult. Well, that's what happens when you make the choices you make. And we mm -hmm. will see you next week after the weekend. Have a good one. And this is Roger from the other side of planet Earth, where we have internet going in and we have killer rats and unfortunately massive death on the highway. On this day for June 16th, 2023 edition of Before Coffee.
be sure to hit the like, subscribe, and notify buttons, and follow our other channels, Toxic Alley, History of Gravy, and Scratchy Old Records.